the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to our conversation today with Kimberly McGowan Yim. A look at the book, Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern Day Slavery. And I had no doubt, uh, Kimberly, there are some eavesdropping on this conversation right now that would say, well, now, wait a minute. We're, we're, we're talking about a handful. I mean, certainly we're, we're compassionate about all of this, but we must be talking about a slavery that's limited to the third world. It might occasionally be exported into uh, the West, but for the most part, a lot of this is concentrated in parts of the world we never see and know nothing about. Yeah, I I can see why that would be kind of the general uh, first assumption, but when you scratch the surface, it's happening um, all around us. And uh, actually, in your neck of the woods of Northern California, there's actually a probably a really strong presence of anti-trafficking coalitions that's going on. Actually, the Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition is just around the corner from you guys, and um, there's a lot of different um, organizations doing amazing stuff in your area, both in your local area as well as um, addressing needs globally. But yeah, we people on the front lines of the anti-trafficking fight um, have been seeing forms of slavery from uh, massage parlors to nail salons to agricultural work to domestic domestic slaves um, through uh, uh, nannies and cleaning services um, construction. I mean, there's it's there's been documented cases of trafficking in all those uh, regions of all those different different um, uh, different groupings here in the United States let alone some of the um, big kind of global issues that are happening as well and some of those same things. So um, commercial sexual exploitation is a, a huge problem and concern, and this is happening in everyday towns. And this is happening, I think we need to be clear about this, as, as much as we typically think of this either in the historical context of, 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 of chattel or, or possessive type slavery, but there's a number of different categories, whether we're talking about forced labor, child labor, uh, debt bondage, whatever the case might be, and then it gets played out not just into the cases of sex trafficking that usually capture the headline news, but this is this is feeding into a lot of everyday Industry. I mean, let's face right. it, this is more than just that. Well, I, let me go back to it. This is probably the same issue that's driving this today as what drove it 100 years ago, 200 years ago, that's driven this topic since the beginning of mankind, and that is power and money. Yeah, and, and yeah, the, the bottom line profitability of it is what's driving it. Yeah, the economy of it. The difference is, though, that... Back when it was legal, um, you know, a smart business guy would have a variety of, you know, have many slaves, and they would be an investment. They would spend kind of the equivalent of $40,000 in today's economy. It would be an investment for uh, their business. Now, 
it's not translating. The value of a human being, a human life, has significantly decreased. And a slave can be purchased on average between $90 and $120. So that the people are becoming more of a commodity. Human beings are being bought and sold in that commodity level price range. They're not no longer seemed as an investment, but just a way to kind of get ahead, but not um, a real investment. So that's why they're um, disposable. I mean, Kevin Bales in his book wrote Disposable People. He talks about how he specifically highlights that point um, in his book. But um, yeah, that's that's the unfortunate part. But I think it's uh, it's an important piece to kind of recognize that um, people are discarded. So uh, a, a woman who is bought and sold on uh, Backpage, on adult services section on Backpage, um, she is bought and sold commercially, and say she gets uh, a disease or an illness or becomes too difficult she could be put out on the street she can be disposed of and those are going to be another young girl or young woman that's going to cycle back in when we consider the fact that for example in the last several years just along the u.s mexico border there have been six seven thousand people that have lost their lives as part of the the drug cartel violence you begin to get the impression and clear understanding that life is cheap, life is worthless, and many of these people are being treated simply like commodities to be bought and sold and traded, used and then thrown out when they're no longer of any value. And the sad irony is your book really reveals this goes well beyond some of the more obvious aspects of, of quote-unquote, modern-day slavery and the sex trades. Uh, it, it touches every aspect of, of life, doesn't it? Yeah, I and when I learned that um, what was going on, part of the conflict now, uh, what's going on in the Congo is a complex issue. But part of what's going on is the fight over these um, mines where minerals are being mined, and those minerals end up in our cell phones, in our computers, in our laptops, and our MP3 players. And when I saw, so our economy is very complex. And so it's adding this to complexities that are going, rather than just certain tribal wars for certain lands, it's because these minerals are so precious that ends up in my phone. So inadvertently, I'm part of the problem. And so when I began to see that the, what, what I do with my time, what I'm doing with my resources, the, the things that I buy, those are not neutral. There is... They have a more global impact than I realize. Just because I don't acknowledge it or I did not understand it doesn't mean that I'm not a, a part of it. And so when I began to see that, I felt a great responsibility to understand it, but then to see, to do the things that I can do that are within my power to make a difference. Now, I can't, Congo is a complex, I cannot go over there and create peace. There are some many amazing um, leaders in that country that are working on that. The local church and different NGOs and different uh, global leaders are involved in that. But what I can do that I found out is that I can begin to ask my electronic companies, what are you doing to monitor your supply chain? What are you doing to help remedy this? The ordinary person has tremendous power when they start asking those questions, asking for slave-free products. And there's platforms that are already existing so that the average consumer can go online and can begin to ask those questions. There's platforms such as Slavery Footprint, 
and Slavery Footprint is in your neck of the woods in Northern California. Their local, their headquarters are, and that's a great platform to sign up on and start asking those questions, asking your companies, what are you doing to monitor your supply chains, and. That, the, these are the kinds of things that I began to see. There's tools, there's platforms, there's people that are creating these accessible things. I just need to use them. And this is the part that I can do. This reaches into almost every aspect of life, uh, both in the third and the first world. Uh, we see evidence of human slavery taking place not just again in the sex trade, which is where it tends to capture a lot of the headline stories, but the agricultural business. You mentioned about mining and manufacturing. We even see it in retail and domestics, which, uh, you know, a a lot of folks, I think, are not aware of the fact that, for example, there are people that get smuggled into countries by coyotes that pay tens of thousands of dollars or obligate themselves to pay tens of thousands of dollars in order to be pulled out of horrific circumstances in a third world nation into, say, a country like the United States. And then once they arrive here, they're not cut loose to fend for themselves. They suddenly find now that they have an obligation to a coyote of ten grand, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand dollars And now they're stuck working for years in a domestic trade or maybe even working in a retail business. We see it going on in the flower industry, in aspects of manufacturing, agriculture. I mean, the list of places where this reach its ugly tentacles into Kimberly is shocking. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm. I appreciate your your the, the knowledge that you do have because it's amazing to me how many there's very you're very fortunate. I'm lucky to be on the show when you know um, as much as you do because that is absolutely correct. I mean, I think there. I thought that there are people that came to the country legally or illegally, um, and. You know, you might have one thought about immigration, but once you're here, to be additionally exploited because you wanted a better life for your family is is a shame. It's horrible. I mean, I I think that to risk your life and spend, even if you're spending money to get here, and then once you're here, you're additionally exploited. Because what, what human trafficking is, is an additional exploitation on the most vulnerable in our world. Well, say, for example, we see people that are working in the garment industry. Uh, a lot of this goes on, most notably in places like New York City, where they're yeah. bringing in seamstresses to work from countries like uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, China. They're smuggled in from overseas, oftentimes in very deplorable, inhumane circumstances. A lot of the big blue shipping containers that you see out at the Port of Oakland, fair number yeah. of them have humans that are hidden in there that are be given uh, paltry amounts of water and and uh, and food to last 8 10 12 day trip across the ocean uh, into uh, into the port and then they get pulled into smuggled into the garment district and they're told you're going to have to work for x number of years in order to yeah. pay off the cost of your trip and by the way if you try to escape or don't do a, a good job uh, we have contacts and they too back in the home country and they say right. if you don't do what we want you to do uh, we're going to kill your parents or maybe you have a child at home. Sometimes they're splitting up where maybe a husband comes to get away and, and be able to hopefully send money back home. And so then now they are threatening the lives of your loved ones back home. And you're right. well, so well beyond the reach of the law because they say, now, if you try to turn us into the police, they'll just deport you. Right. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the, the question, what do we do? Right. I mean, what what can we do? Let's save that point because I don't want to interrupt you. We're going to take a time out. We're going to come back and address that very important question. It comes down to, I guess, two questions we're going to have Kimberly address for us. Number one, why 
should it matter to us, particularly as Christians? All right, I'm, I'm heart sick to hear that women and children are being exploited in sex trade, agriculture business, mining, manufacturing, domestic, retail. All but you know, at the end of the day, why does this really matter to me? And then, if we do conclude that it should matter, what do we do about it? We'll come back to that part of the equation, our conversation with Kimberly McOwen-Yim. The book, Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern-Day Slavery. And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation, Kimberly McGowan-Yim, the book, Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern-Day Slavery. By the way, let me mention, if you've ever run into a case where you suspect that might be going on, there is a national slavery action hotline that you can call. It's 888-373-7888. That's 888-373-7888. Kim, answer this for me. Some folks eavesdropping on our conversation today might have an understanding that, yes, this is going on and it's pretty pathetic and awful and horrible. But how does this affect me directly? How does it affect you directly? I think um, I think we we kind of touched on a few of those things uh, through our phones, through our communities, through um, just we see it going around us. We don't necessarily see it overtly, but it's happening just under our noses. We might be having um, dinner at a restaurant where the people that are serving us um, are slaves, are enslaved and cannot leave. I could be wearing a shirt right now that's made in another country or, for that matter, made in the New York City garment district that was made with slave labor. Yeah. And as you mentioned um, before the break, you know, as 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 Christians, why should it matter to us? I mean, that is a, that is a great question. And um, I think um, in to answering, to looking at that, to know, I've come to learn that we, we kind of all, um, as followers of Christ, see that to know God is to know love, right? We say God is love. But I think in the same vein, to know God is to know justice. I mean, he, what I have learned over the last four years is, all through Scripture, God calls us, beckons us through through direct quotes, through His prophets. I mean, you name it, all through Scripture, it talks about caring for the oppressed, caring for the widow, caring for the orphan, caring for the oppressed. Well, and the amazing um, picture we have, too, I mean, we think about the very observation, what did Christ come to do? In Scripture, we learn He came to set the captives, captives free. He yeah. came to bring freedom to those that were enslaved, and the imagery that's used there is not by accident. It was imagery that the Writers at the time knew the audience the readers would immediately relate to because they saw pictures of the impact and destruction of slavery all around them. And so the idea of somebody that is that deep in bondage and has such utter hopelessness, being a slave, being given sudden release or freedom, was such a powerful image that it was even used for us to understand what it meant for Christ to die on the cross that we might be forgiven and released from the bondage of the slavery of our sin. Talk about powerful images that ought to immediately sort of kind of bring this message to the forefront for every Christian who understands what it is to be forgiven. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What do we do about all this? 
How do we, you, you have a chapter in the book, you bring about a discussion concerning chocolate. And I'm a huge chocolate lover. Anybody that's seen my waistline can certainly nod their head in agreement. Um, we know that there are places in the world, particularly along the Ivory Coast in Africa, that contribute to the vast majority of the cocoa beans that are harvested for the chocolate that we all enjoy. You use yeah. that as one example. Share that with our listeners and then take a couple of moments, if you would, please, Kimberly, and just give us a big sort of 30,000 mile high viewpoint as to what we need to be doing to actively engage in bringing to an end the horror that is slavery. Okay, um, in you know just so many minutes. Um, uh, the you mentioned that great point about chocolate, and I think that's one of the the points that we make in the book is that everybody, all consumers, have uh, purchasing power. They have consumer power as consumers. So, and looking specifically at chocolate, uh, we can begin to redirect our spending and buy fair trade chocolate. And there are there's divine chocolate. I believe is in your northern. I mean, is in your neck of the woods. Divine chocolate um, is there, and and fair trade. Uh, and it's there's a there's an, a labeling for that, um, kind of like an organic. There's actually like a, a, a sign, like an image, a black and white image on next to their products on what is fair trade certified, and it's a third party certification that has done that due diligence to see if it's a clean supply chain and so buying fair trade chocolate redirecting and i know it's hard i mean i've got two small kids who love their chocolate and their candy but we intentionally redirect our spending to buying fair trade chocolate um, and fair trade products in general uh, another organization that i love that's also up in your area trade is one has they're going to a whole new they're only going to be selling consumable fair trade goods uh, from rice to olive oil to chocolate, you you name it, those kind of consumable things that are fair trade certified. So using your purchasing power, pausing at the point of purchase and thinking, do I need it? Is this so? Is there a reason why they're so cheap? I mean, half the time now, I just kind of I. I is there, is there a reason why this is so cheap? Asking those questions. And if we don't know, if it isn't fair trade, then asking the companies directly. And that's where Slavery, slavery Footprint is a great resource. Well, it's ironic because we've seen, for example, with Apple, many of the Apple products that we yeah. see coming out of communist China are being made with slave labor or certainly in circumstances, conditions, and at, at wages that we would look at from any uh, first world viewpoint and say, well, that's deplorable. That's horrific. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you mentioned Apple because um, as, from what I know, and I surely don't claim to be the expert expert, I'm just I'm, I, I like to say I'm just a mom, but I've done a lot of reading. Um, but the um, Apple went ahead and uh, was very, very candid, saying, do an audit on our company. We want to know. We want to know where things are made and how things are made. We want a clean supply chain. So they were actually one of the first... Uh, um, what am I thinking of? The, the first computer companies that who had said, electronic companies who had said, we want a clean supply chain op- and, and open themselves up to a third-party audit. And that is a new thing. And more and more, hopefully with enough public pressure, more and more companies will look at that as an example. And so rather than saying, oh, no, we might, because more than likely they, they do, is just saying, we want to know. 
Because oftentimes they don't know. They they trust the people that they're hiring to, you know, overseas. And there's, you know, the minerals have gone through a variety of transits. And it can be tricky to find out, but not impossible. And so I think by public pressure and asking those questions, that'll put enough, um, with enough people caring about it and asking for that, will, re- will become a, p- a public pressure that more and more companies will begin to want to have clean supply chains. So I think we have purchasing power. Um, you mentioned, uh, I think we, we, have, we all have relationship power and influence power, right? So we have people in our lives, in our ordinary lives, whether it's our neighbors, whether it's people we go to church with, whether it's our bosses, our employees, our schools, PTA. I mean, anyone who is working with kids, who is um, working in any kind of industry, and there's all kinds of people we can have conversations with about it. Education is a huge piece. The hotline number that you mentioned, perfect. I mean, paying attention to what's going around us is, I think, half of it. Because oftentimes we go on as business as usual. Keep to the grind, get in our car, go to the next spot, and we don't, we're not asking the questions, we're not get, building relationships, we're picking up our clothes at the dry cleaner. Do we look at the person in the eye? How are you? When we get our nails done, are we asking for the same person and building a relationship with the person that's doing our nails? Because that is where we're going to begin to see, um, and possibly, who around us, when are some red flags? Well, and at the end of the day, I think, as the title of your book suggests, look, this is a problem that's going on worldwide. People in the first world are benefiting from this, willingly, wittingly, or otherwise. It's not right. We need to do something aggressively to stop it. And we ought to be asking these questions, as Kimberly suggests. And then, most importantly, taking a proactive approach to doing something about it. Again, a great way to get educated. Check out slaveryfootprint.org. That's slaveryfootprint.org. And if you're interested more in this topic, a wonderful book newly published by InterVarsity Press Crescendo called simply Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern Day Slavery. And our thanks to its co-author. And by the way, I also should mention the founder of the San Clemente Abolitionist Mamas. I love that title. Uh, Kimberly McOwen Yim. Kimberly, thanks so much for the time and the insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to turn a corner here to a topic that I think we're all pretty familiar with. In fact, we've heard a lot about it in the press, and maybe you even had some experiences or seen them at a distance. I'm talking, of course, about homelessness. And we've all heard the statistics, X number of kids sleep in cars, X number of adults in doorways, X number die from exposure every year. It no doubt... I hope as a person of faith strikes a chord with you, but maybe if you're like most people, not much of one, at least not until it happens to us or until we get to know someone affected by homelessness. Notice I didn't say just meet. I mean, really get to know someone. Well, that's exactly what Ron Hall did, and he details his experiences inside the pages of a New York Times best-selling book called Same Kind of Different as Me, soon to be a spectacular film of the same title. And Ron, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us. And thank you, Craig. And just a quick update. Yes, our, th- our film opened uh, Friday, uh, October the 20th, uh, nationwide, so it is... Uh 
now a spectacular film that's in theaters all across America. Well, that's good to hear. And, of course, we want to urge listeners to uh, to really take a moment and watch that heartwarming film. It's got a, a great cast of characters in it. Uh, Greg Kinnear is in it. Renee Zellweger. Uh, John Voight. And the story really, in many respects, follows the, the chronicling that you do in the book that you co-wrote with, frankly, the gentleman's kind of the theme of this entire story, a Denver um who essentially crossed your path in an unlikely set of circumstances, a lot of which, I, as I recall, kind of harkens back to some challenges that you were facing in your own marriage. Well, uh, yes, I was trying to put back a marriage. My wife and I were both trying to put back a marriage after my uh, bout with infidelity. But um, she was a very godly woman, and I was a believer, but uh, was, was, was not on the path, walking the path, uh, you know, with God at that time. I was I was chasing hard after money and got caught up in just my own uh, self-importance and, um, and just, uh, I don't know, I made a deliberate decision to destroy a marriage, and but a godly wife uh, threw my sin as far as the East is from the West and promised she would never bring it up again if I would only promise not to do that again. And so I, at that moment, I said, honey, I will absolutely take you on, up on that offer. And and what, not only I will do anything you ask me the rest of our lives together. I just didn't realize that it wasn't long after that that she was going to ask me to be friends with a homeless man who always threatened to kill everybody. Yeah, you have to be careful about what you promise. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's it's interesting because, as you indicate, uh, there were missteps. A lot of it, as you suggest, Ron, came from your focus on, I think, a lot of us who, who, who struggle with um, not being number one. We're used to being number one. We kind of enjoy being number one. And so uh, chasing the the bigger cars, the bigger house, um, the bigger bank account, and all of that for a lot of people is is what life seems to be all about. You had a successful career in Fort Worth as an art dealer there, got caught up in some indiscretions as you indicate. So your wife's deal of hey, uh, we got to work on getting closer together, and how about maybe a little bit of a a common burden or a common goal that we can work on, and that found the two of you working together at a homeless shelter. Tell us about your first encounter then with Denver. Well, <clears throat> the reason we we actually went there, Craig, is that she had a literal dream that she believed was from God. And she said to me the next morning, Ron, it's, uh, I had a dream about a poor man who was wise. It was like a verse in Ecclesiastes where Solomon wrote, there was found in the city a certain poor man who was wise, and by his wisdom our city would be changed. And she said, and I believe he has a message for us. And our lives will be changed as well if we can find him. So that's what uh, prompted us to uh, begin our journey into the inner city haunts of the homeless. And uh, it was a quite quite a scary place to, to be. And uh, anyway, we began driving around there the first day uh, looking for this man of her dream. And we didn't see him. So by the end of the day, we decided to volunteer at a homeless shelter. Oh, I'd say we decided. I'm saying she decided that we would volunteer without ever asking me. And uh, so anyway, um, actually, when I went in there, I, I, I was germaphobic, or at least I was at the time. And I asked the uh, manager or chef uh, that was preparing an evening meal, and I said, hey, are there any infectious diseases floating around this place? 
And he uh, said, oh, absolutely. We try to infect them all with love. <laughs> oh, man, what have I gotten myself into? This smart Elliot guy is trying to make me feel bad about myself. But anyway, uh, you know, we'd been there a couple of weeks serving the evening meal when all of a sudden uh, and breaks into the this guy breaks into the uh, dining hall uh, and he starts screaming at the top of his lungs I'm going to kill whoever done it I'm going to kill whoever stole my shoes and my wife starts saying that's him that's him and I said that's who she said that's the man I had the dream about and then she told me she said and I believe I heard from God that you have to be his friend Ron and find out if my dream is really from God and I said but honey I went into that meeting you had with God and if I'm going to be friends with someone who's threatening to kill everybody I think I should go talk to God myself so <laughs> that's how we uh, we got started but I asked the guy that was standing next to me on the serving line I said who is that crazy man he said nobody knows his name but he's been on the streets longer than anyone could ever remember and she, they, he said he rules the streets with fear and intimidation and most people just call him suicide because messing with him is the equivalent of committing suicide. And he said, if he's dangerous and he's crazy, you ought to stay away from him because he'll hurt you. You've got to, at this point, Ron, be thinking to yourself, what am I getting myself into? I mean, it's clear that you (laughs) loved your wife, Debbie, that you wanted to take the necessary steps to, to reconcile and to bring about healing in your marriage. She had certain conditions, albeit perhaps unusual ones, but in <laughs> conditions nevertheless that I think were, were, were clearly God-honoring ones. And suddenly you find yourself having gone from, I just want to not get you know kicked out of the house or served with divorce papers, to suddenly yeah. being here working in a homeless shelter and having an encounter with a man that, I don't know, perhaps at arm's distance, as we see characterized in the film, might be a little bit on the schizophrenic side. Certainly somebody who spent a life on the streets, who doesn't have the uh, the most refined manners in public, and your <laughs> wife is telling you, that's the man that God yeah. told me you need to be friends with. Wow. That was the man in her dream, she said. So, well, and, and uh, you know, it was, uh, I, I was just willing to write a check to get out of there and uh, and build them a whole new mission if they needed it because at the time I was wealthy enough to have done that but um, uh, you know that wasn't going to be the easy way out for me and she said I would be uh, we would be volunteering there and we would continue to do so until further notice mm. and that that began uh, a new adventure for me I you know, I had spent most of my life, I was an international art dealer and traveled the world buying and selling a lot of very important uh, works of art to uh, museums and, and large collectors. And I visited many beautiful homes and collections. And so, you know, being stuck in a smelly old homeless shelter was the last place on earth that I wanted to be. And uh, But, you know, God ha- had a different idea for me, and he was about to repaint the canvas of my life and rewrite my life story. Let's take a time out because I want, don't want to interrupt you, Ron, when you pivot to your first encounter with Denver Moore and eventually the friendship that grows between, quite frankly, two men from their very different worlds, and yet God brings together for one very common purpose. Ron Hall is with us tonight. Ron is the co-author of the New York Times best-selling book, Same Kind of Different as Me, published by Thomas Nelson. The new film, as we mentioned, has been newly released by the same name, same kind of different as me. It's showing in theaters across America, even as we speak. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Since 1965, the Bay Area Rescue Mission, of course, they are a group of people that have known what homelessness looks like and have taken important steps to address it. Ron Hall knows what homelessness looks like and the impact that it can have on an individual. Ron, tell us about your first encounter then with Denver Moore. Well, um, after the first day when he threatened to kill everybody in the room and then the security guards dragged him out of there, at the insistence of my wife, Debbie, uh, she asked me every morning before I would go to my art gallery uh, or to my ranch, I was kind of dividing my time between the two of them, uh, she would ask me to go take a drive through the inner city and just see if I couldn't get him in my car to uh, find out what his story is or was and and find out if if that story and, and, and his wisdom, you know, really matched up with her literal dream that she believed was from God. But, and so I did. I, uh, every morning I would take a drive right in the inner city, and usually I would see him because he lived by a dumpster uh, near the mission, uh, near the homeless mission, which is a rescue mission, uh, just like the one in the Bay Area. And, uh, and, but he would see my car or my truck pull in, and he would take off back in the woods, what they call the hobo jungle. And uh, so I would report that I had seen him. And uh, but anyway, it took me five months to get him in my car. And uh, that's a long story. If you read the book, same kind of different as me, you would know it's a roller coaster ride that ended up with him in my car one morning. And uh, so we went to get some breakfast. And I found out that he had grown up on a plantation in Louisiana in the late 30s and uh, through the through the 1940s. And and. Uh, when he was 16 years old, uh, he was roped and dragged by the Ku Klux Klan for helping a white woman change a flat tire on the plantation. And on that day, uh, the Klan extracted a promise from him that he would never again uh, look a white person in the eye or, or ever speak to a white woman. And, uh, and he, had, he was 62 years old when I met him, and he had been out of prison at that point for 25 years. And he was a very, very uh, damaged, psychologically uh, uh, very damaged man, and uh, and he spoke to no one, didn't talk to anybody. Uh, he was just a loner and uh, and what people considered crazy, except uh, he was also an enforcer of, of uh, if anyone else tried to beat up someone that was uh, weaker than them, uh, he would extract justice with his baseball bat on him. So he was, he was considered crazy, but he was also schizophrenic. So... But uh, anyway, that's uh, uh, when I get him in the car, you know, he asked me, he says, what is it you want from me? And I said, hey, man, I just want to be your friend. And he looked at me with this incredulous look and he said, you want to be my friend? And I said, that's it. And, uh, you know, I was just actually lying to him at that point because I was just doing that to please my wife, Debbie, to, to you know, fulfill this promise I'd made to her. But uh, when he said he would think about it, I tell you, it just came all over me. I thought, hey, buddy, you look the gift horse in the mouth because you don't know who I am and how rich I am and what I can do for you. I can get you clothes, a car, apartment. I can even buy you a house or anything that you want. And you're just kind of a, you, an idiot, I would think, to not want to be my friend and just jump all, all over this opportunity. But I was, I was so arrogant, Craig. I couldn't believe he had anything to offer me in a friendship. But if he behaved himself, uh, that I would 
bless him uh, with enough things to uh, make it worth his while to be my friend. Of course, the absolute irony behind all of this is, and I don't want to give away too much of the plot line of the book nor the movie, and again, the movie is now available in theaters nationwide, same kind of different as me, but the, the intention here to follow through on your promise to your wife, and I'm sure there was a design both from the viewpoint of yourself and Debbie that the two of you were going to minister to this gentleman and, and hopefully give to him to help help him in any way that God would leave you to, and yet in the end, it seems like there was uh, there was a lot of giving going on, and a lot of it was coming from him, actually. Well, it was, because, uh, you know, about two weeks later, after that breakfast meeting, I saw him taking trash out of a dumpster, feeding the wild animals on the street, and, and he got him, I asked him to go get some coffee with me, so we go to Starbucks, and we're sitting there, and he says, I've been thinking a lot about what you asked me. And I said, what did I ask you that required any thought? He said, well, you asked me if I'd be your friend. And I said, uh, well, I sure did. So what do you think about that? He said, well, there's something I heard about white folks that really bothers me, and it's got to do with fishing. And I said, well, you know, Denver, I'm not a fisherman. I'm, I'm a, a, an art dealer and a cowboy, but uh, I don't even own a rod and reel or a tackle box, so I don't know if I can answer your question. He said, oh, I bet you can. And so I said, okay, what is it? He said, well, I heard when white folks go fishing, they do this thing they call catch and release. And I just started laughing, and I said, well, Denver, of course they do. It's a sport. You don't get it? He said, no, sir, I sure don't get it. He said, because back on the plantation, we'd go out in the morning, we'd dig us a can full of worms, cut us a cane pole, sit on the riverbank. When we got something on our line, we were really proud of what we caught, and we'd take it back to the plantation and share it with all the folks. And he said, so it occurred to me, if you're just a white man fishing for a friend, and you're going to catch and release, then I ain't got no desire to be your friend. Wow. Boy, there's wisdom. There's wisdom. That's when my mind flashed back to Debbie's dream of a poor man who was wise because that was singly the most wise thing I'd ever heard on friendship. And, uh, you know, I knew if I ever heard from God, it was at that moment. I said, I had to take a chance. And I said, okay, Denver, I'll be your friend. And, uh, and we began this life-changing friendship where he became my professor. I was his very eager student. In fact, Craig, one of the first days I was sitting with him on the curb of uh, by the dumpster, and I was entering his classroom, I guess, <laughs> as the cars and trucks were passing by. And uh, he asked me, he said, are you one of them Christians? And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, well, can you tell me why all you Christians worship one homeless man on Sunday and turn your back on the first one you see on Monday? And I said, no, Denver, I can't. I, he said, Mr. Ron, you never know whose eyes God is watching you out of. And he said, it ain't going to be your preacher or your Sunday school teacher. He said, it might be a fellow that looks like me. He said, now it ain't me, but it might be a fellow that looks just like me. And God's just checking you out to see uh, what kind of person you are. He said, you know, uh, all you folks think that the homeless is a problem. He said, but let me tell you, God sees it as an opportunity for the faithful to show the love of Christ. You know, Ron, I've been involved with ministry to the homeless here in the Bay Area for many, many years. And that is the first time I've heard that statement in such a way that I think would cause all of us to pause, that we worship a homeless man on Sunday and then turn our backs on the first one we see on Monday. Wow. I mean, not only the depth of how profound that is, but how close to home, I think, that cuts for so many of us. Yeah. You know, he told me, he looked at me and he pointed at me and he said, well, whether we're rich, and he was pointing right at me, 
And then he pointed back at himself and he said, whether we's rich or whether we's poor or something in between. He said, this earth ain't no final resting place. He said, so in a way, we all homeless, just working our way home. Hmm. The title of the book is actually something that uh, Denver came up with it, isn't it? Yes, he did. <laughs> he did. He sure did. He was uh, speaking at Debbie's uh, memorial service. Um, it was, uh, he, he actually told me five months into our friendship that he said, what Miss Debbie is doing for the homeless in Fort Worth, Texas, she has become precious to God. He said, when you become precious to God, you become important to Satan. He said, watch your backside, something bad getting ready to happen to Miss Debbie. And uh, three days later, she was diagnosed with cancer and given only three to five months to live. But the good news is she, she lived 19 months. But during this 19 months, the man that I thought had nothing to offer me in a friendship stayed on his knees all night long, talking and praying to God. And he would knock on our door the next morning and bring us a fresh, relevant message that he heard from God in the night. I'll tell you, I used to marvel at how God chose the homeless, most dangerous man on the streets of Fort Worth to be the one who encouraged us the very most during the darkest 19 months of our lives. And isn't it true, Ron, that you just simply have no idea? I mean, even for those of us that look at the homeless situation and, and wish to give and make a difference and volunteer and donate and do all that we that we do, at the end of the day, I think largely we think that we are the ones doing the ministering not realizing that God in the bigger picture that he has about foot in his greater grander design that is far bigger and larger than any of us will ever be able to comprehend that at the end of the day there's a whole lot of ministry going on it's just not always in the direction that we think it's going exactly and a lot of people that don't know this story or haven't seen the movie or haven't read the book think it's a white savior that I went in and saved this African-American man, and there could be nothing farther from the truth than that. He saved me from myself. He, he taught me things I could never possibly learn, even from, uh, even from the Bible. You know, I just, he taught me pra in practical ways how God works in mysterious ways. And, uh, and he saved my family. He saved my marriage. He saved my uh, relationship with my father and all of these things. He led my father to Christ, my racist father that hated him. He ended up with me leading him to Christ when he was 90 years old. And the man who grew up and was trained, we'll say it that way, was trained to hate white people. In the end, God used to do the greatest ministry to the very object of his hatred and anger. And we're reminded in Scripture how God uses the things of this world to confound the wise. It is a compelling story. It is one that will set you back on your heels and one that I would encourage you not only to read, but now go see. It's called Same Kind of Different as Me. It's published by Thomas Nelson. Again, longtime New York Times bestselling book by authors Ron Hall and a co-author, of course, by Denver Moore. Now the story on the big screen. We mentioned uh, Greg Kinnear, Renee Zellweger, John Voigt. And um, talk to us about, if you would, just briefly, Ron, before our time winds up, the actor who plays Denver Moore here. 
Well, that is Jaiman Hansu, who was nominated for an Oscar in Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio, and also in another, he starred in Amistad and Gladiator. He was nominated for another Oscar uh, in, in uh, working or uh, coming to America. But uh, he was he came from Africa as a refugee landing in France and was homeless for a year on the streets of France before he was discovered by Calvin Klein to become an underwear model, very famous model <laughs> back in the early 90s. And that led him to his first role in, in film. But uh, he is one of the most extraordinary uh, actors ever. And we've had uh, several uh, critics who love this film said that he deserves an Oscar for his performance as my late friend Denver Moore. And so. Jaiman Hansu certainly brings so much life to to the role and to the story. And we appreciate, Ron, you continuing to breathe life into this story of your experiences with Denver and the way in which God um, set out in this very special mission uh, thinking that uh, I guess at a level you were going to minister to him and God had a whole other plan going on. Same kind of different as me, the best selling book now a wonderful film available in the theaters and we invite you to check it out same kind of different as me.com our thanks to ron hall co-author of this wonderful book and uh, the subject of this new film for being with us on this segment of lifeline Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.